Consequence Podcast Network. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Buck Dharma from Blue Oyster Cult, and I'm giving you the story behind the song on the Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Story Behind the Song. I'm your host, Peter Chotti, and in this second very special Halloween edition of my pod, I speak with Don Roser, a.k.a. Buck Dharma, lead guitarist, singer, and songwriter for legendary classic rock band Blue Oyster Cult band that broke out into headliner status with its haunting otherworldly song, Don't Fear the Reaper. Truly one of the most iconic and timeless songs of the past 50 years. Reaper is the perfect song for this Halloween season. It was featured in the classic movie Halloween, after all. Reaper achieved all these things in spite of, or maybe because of, its relentless use of cowbell and Will Ferrell's classic SNL sketch with Christopher Walken, who famously said, Guess what? I got a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. So take a listen as we dive deep into the story behind the song with Don Roser, a.k.a. Buck Dharma, a Blue Oyster Cult. Don, great to see you. Thank you, Peter. I'm also known as Buck Dharma professionally. Okay, so uh, I'm going to switch gears then. I'll call you Buck. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's obviously it's a really big year. How do you feel about 50 years? I never would have thought 50 years, you know. Initially, when we, when we got signed by Columbia Records back in the day, I figured that we'd make one or two, maybe three records, and then you know, do something else for the rest of my life, and now it's 50 years later. Yeah. And by the way, I usually ask this question at the end, but since you mentioned it, figure out what you do the rest of your life. If you didn't become Buck Dharma and Blue Oyster Call, what do you think you would have done? I think if the man had, you know, peaked and burned out, I, I would have gone into uh, record production and, and the engineering side of it, which I've always enjoyed. And uh, 
I thought I would be pretty good at it, you know. If it happened today, uh, I don't know, I'd, I'd make uh, ships and bottles or something, I don't know. You're, you were a chemi chemical engineer, right? I went to school uh, just not with any particular aim, but, you know, I had I had good good SATs for uh, engineering school. Yeah. Both my parents worked in the uh, defense industry on Long Island, where I grew up. At that time, it was quite uh, quite thriving, and uh, so I was just sort of steered in that direction. And and uh, I was influenced by my high school chemistry teacher, who got me you know, psyched up for chem. So anyway, I got into a, a bar band in college. Uh, I met the original drummer of Blue Oyster Cult, uh, Albert Bouchard, there, and uh, that became basically the core of what became Blue Oyster Cult eventually. Yeah, no, it's amazing how things happen. One moment leads to a completely transformed life. Um, the classic song, Don't Fear the Reaper, from the 1976 album Agents of Fortune, written by and sung by you, uh, one of the, as I said, and as we all know, one of the most classic of classic rock songs of all time. It's considered to be a masterpiece by many, including Pitchfork. Uh, Rolling Stone named it as the song of the year in 1976, and it's top 500 of all time, with easily top 500 of all time. I've always felt that Don't Fear the Reaper is the perfect song. I, it's in my top 10 of all time. Uh, I just think that everything about it sonically, um, lyrically, the storyline, the feeling that it evokes, all of that is just classic and timeless. So first, take me on a guided tour of how you did get into the music business. You mentioned meeting your bandmate and becoming Blue Oyster Cult, but just even before then, how did you go that direction? My dad was a, a sax player. My dad lived to be uh, 94 and he just passed away a couple years ago. And, uh, but he, he was um, a World War II veteran, and uh, he played sax semi-professionally. You know, he he passed up a you know the full-time thing, but uh, he played weekends. Um, he was a club musician uh, most of his life. He played pretty much right up to the end of his life. So he got me into music, and I absorbed a lot of his his era music, the big band, jazz, and. Uh, the 50s cool school and he used to take me to uh, shows uh, like matinee shows you know but uh, at clubs on Long Island when jazz musicians came through I saw Maynard Ferguson I saw Chet Baker so I was familiar with it really liked it I, I played I took accordion lessons when I was nine for about a year and then, then I pretty much figured that the accordion wasn't too hip as an instrument, so put that down. I took drum lessons for a while, and I was a drummer for a few years. And then I picked up guitar because I'd broken my wrist in playing street basketball. And while I had the cast on, I, uh, my brother had a acoustic guitar that he got for Christmas, and I picked that up and started playing it. And when I got the cast off, I knew a drummer that was better than me, so I just stayed with the guitar. You had this basketball accident on your wrist, yeah. and you, you were a drummer. Uh, I don't yes. know, you, did you have any inkling before the accident of picking up guitar, or were you just very happy being a drummer? Because if you didn't have the accident, maybe none of this would have happened. Right, I probably would have stayed a drummer. 
but I was already thinking of putting a band together, and and yeah. I knew this drummer that I wanted to be in the band. So. And how how did your father, the jazz musician, feel about you getting into a a, a different path and getting into rock and roll? Um, my dad never really he never really grokked rock and roll. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but. I mean, he understood it, and after after I became a recording artist, he was definitely um, you know studied it and listened to, to pop music a lot more than he had before. But uh, yeah, yeah, but he's he's always encouraged uh, you know my playing. The, uh, there was a period of time when we were uh, I had left college and uh, the band wasn't making any money. We starved for about four years, and mm. toward that time, you know he's. Both my parents said, you know, when are you going to get a real job, basically? You know? And that went on until uh, we finally had the first Columbia record come out, and then, then, it, was, then it was okay to be a musician. <laughs> yes. Then you had a career going, so <laughs> yeah. things were okay. Yeah, and again, you know, who, who knew how long it was going to last, but yeah. you know, it lasted, yeah. Okay, so then during the course, your friend was Albert, and you started right. the band. He was my um, bandmate in college, yes. Okay, your bandmate in college. And did you tell us about how Blue Oyster Cult came out of that? Was that I, my, my understanding is that wasn't the first iteration of what you guys did. No, I was fast-forwarding by several years there. But uh, yeah. both he and I lasted two years at Clarkson College, which is now Clarkson University, which is the engineering school we'd both gone to. After that, I, I took a communications course uh, on, on a Long Island college and uh, for another semester before finally giving it up to just try to be a pro musician. And at the point that I'd met Sandy Perlman, who was an early rock critic uh, in New York, and also an aspiring uh, rocker himself. He, uh, he was the main lyricist and also basically conceived the idea of, of the first band that we were in, the Soft White Underbelly, which preceded Blue Oyster Cult, but was essentially mm -hmm. the same personnel with a couple of differences. Since he was a rock critic, he, uh, he was already being courted by uh, record labels to promote you know, their artists. So he could get his foot in the door with record companies. So he, we, we, we had what we perceived to be a real chance to get somewhere in the music business. And uh, he was our main lyricist along with Richard Meltzer at the time. And they were Stony Brook graduates. And um, we were hanging around at Stony Brook University because our then bass player, Andrew Winters, uh, was in a... Uh, a house that uh, college students rented, basically. He had a yeah. room, you know. So that's how I met Sandy. And uh, there's more people involved, too. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the thumbnail and, and, of it. Yeah. So if it was essentially the same personnel, then how, why did you move from calling yourself a soft white underbelly to Blue Oyster Cult? And how did, how did that name pop up in your minds? And tell us about the umlaut, too. I'm curious about that. Okay, well, the Imlot was a joke, but I'll go back back to the <laughs> underbelly days. But uh, yeah, we um, we made a bunch of demos for New York record companies. We made one at Mercury. We made one at Columbia early on. We made uh, 
one at Atlantic, and um, we had gotten signed eventually to Electra Records as the Softwood Underbelly. Jack Holzman signed us after a club appearance in New York, and this is before Eric Bloom, the, our vocalist with me, uh, was in the band. His, the previous vocalist was named Les Bronstein, and uh, Les was, I think Jack Holzman saw Les as like the next Jim Morrison or something, because he, he had this, you know, kind of charismatic, uh, stream of conscious rap kind of a thing, you know, over improvised music that the band would do you know we were yeah. we were we were like uh we were like a jam band before there was jam bands you know we we always thought of ourselves in the underbelly as as the east coast answer to the west coast psychedelic bands yeah 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 so the first dead us. yeah so we got signed by electra and we did some recording and we never really had a record released on Electra. Um, there, there was a falling out between uh, Electra and our management, Sandy, that, and um, they shelved those those tapes. And uh, then Electra changed hands a couple of times. Warner Brothers yeah. bought them, and then they got sold again. I thought those tapes were lost, and then Rhino released them about 30 years after Blue Oyster Cult. So. They weren't. They weren't gone. Wow, wow, that's so good too. If you ever want to hear, under the soft white underbelly. Yeah, yeah. That, okay. They're, they're probably on the streaming services. I haven't checked, but they probably. Okay, are. so everybody out there, check it out. It might be on yeah. Spotify as we as we speak. Uh, yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, that's you can, hear, that, you can hear the difference between Blue Oyster Cult and the soft white underbelly too. So there was that upheaval, You then Blue Oyster Cult, so how did that name come to be? After we failed to get a record out on, on Electra, we became a bar band for a year just to survive. And, uh, and that lasted about a year, and then we were just about ready to give it up and try something else. And uh, we, got, uh, we got an audition with uh, Columbia, and uh, Clive Davis signed us. And... Uh, we didn't have a name at that point, so we had to find one. And Blue Oyster Cult was a song title. It was a title of, of one of Sandy's lyrics. And, uh, and we took it, you know, I don't think we were totally sold on it in the first five minutes or so, but after a while we got really into it. Well, that's interesting too. I had no yeah. idea it came from a song lyric from Sandy, yes. but yeah. because even that lyric is not an obvious lyric. No, but none of none of Sandy's lyrics are obvious in the sense of, of, of yeah. you know the just the the general road of of uh, you know rock and pop. BOC's yeah, yeah, place yeah. gone its own way. Right. Okay. So behind my shoulder, for those who are watching, you can see the umlaut over the O, the famous right. umlaut. So you mm -hmm. said it was a joke, but is there a story behind that? I think we were the first umlaut band, but we weren't the last by any 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 me no. measure. You know, I think once we'd done it, uh, you know, the, the the idea of it appealed to a lot of people. So, oh, there's no question that that's true. Right. It became kind of a staple mm -hmm. of rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, and uh, that's... you know, the, we were regarded as heavy metal pioneers, but I think musically mm -hmm. we were never heavy metal. You know, as metal became, you know, we were just yeah, way too eclectic and, and different, all kinds of styles. You know, we were all over the place. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you look at songs from uh, that we're going to be talking about, Fear the Reaper, or Reaper, and then 
Godzilla is a very different kind of song too. A lot of, but the eclecticism definitely shines through. I have to ask you, Buck, about Buck Dharma. So mm. your stage name, which yes. very much of part of your identity. How did you become known as Buck Dharma? That was there was a, a a short period where we all considered taking pseudonyms or stage names, and I think I'm the only person in the band that that liked my stage name so so I I took it you know at the same point you know I wanted everybody that I grew up with to know who it was so I used to put both my names on the credits you know but yeah it's funny having two names you know it's it's like having a alter ego a little bit yeah I need to find something I need to find something and put some yeah. moonlights over it right <laughs> I could probably think of a name for you Peter I know. oh no okay be kind yeah, no, I, I mean, not off the top of my head, but if you asked me if I wasn't a rocker, what would I do? And yeah. one of the things I would enjoy doing is being the guy that names things, you know, uh, patent medicines, you know, uh, yeah. products, you know. I well, you certainly have a way with the words. Obviously, we'll get into the <laughs> lyrics of Reaper, which are amazing lyrics. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back to hear the story behind the song with Buck Dharma. And Don, see you in a second. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. We are back, everybody, with Buck Dharma of the great classic band Blue Oyster Cult. Obviously, everybody knows this song. It's featured prominently in countless films, ranging from Halloween to Gone Girl. Um, I think most people know that Stephen King cites it as the inspiration behind the novel The Stand, and it's actually, the lyrics are quoted at the beginning of the novel, but I think that he actually got some of the lyrics wrong when he did that. Um, you wrote it, you sang it, you played lead guitar on it. Tell us the story, Don. 
how did how did that classic amazing track how did that all just come out of your mind the germ of it literally did come out of my mind it's the the uh, signature guitar riff in the beginning I just played it you know and and once I had played it I turned on the tape recorder because you know I knew that it sounded good you know so I had that and uh, coincidentally it was the first song I'd written on my new four-track tape recorder which enabled me to uh, play multiple parts in sync um, before computers, there were tape recorders, and before tape recorders, only professional studios had multi-track recorders. But uh, around that time, around it was, must have been about 1974, uh, TAC came out with a four-track recorder that was affordable, and so that was the first song I had written on that. The first two lines of lyric, uh, all our times have come here, but now they're gone. Um, just kind of popped into my head. I don't know if I'd thought of Don't Fear the Reaper yet, you know, but at some point I, I wanted to write about, uh, about dying at a young age and because I'd been diagnosed with a, a heart arrhythmia and I was a little, a little worried about it. Turns out it wasn't a big deal, you know, it was uh, manageable. But I was thinking about mortality and imagining that, that, uh, that there would be life after death, you know, and that, uh, especially from a romantic sense, you know, that, that you know, your, your partner wouldn't be alone. There would be a way to, you know, get over that hump of, of the, the here and now, you know. So that's, that's the imagination of the story. You were just playing your guitar. Yeah. Uh, you picked it up one day and yeah. well, started playing this. Yeah, well, actually, I was in front of the machine, and I was trying to think of something to, to put down, you know? Yeah. Really? So yeah. you were intentionally trying to come up with something at that time. Right. I was songwriting, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, do, you, do, you, do you recall the moment when that came out of you, that riff? I remember the time and place. Yeah, I was, you know, I had the machine on a on a, uh, a little upright piano, a console piano, and yeah, I was sitting on the piano bench playing guitar, you know, and it right. was going right into the machine. And so, when you first played that riff, you said that the first couple lyrics came out roughly at the same time. Yeah, well, I I recorded a passage of the of the guitar riff, just basically the intro, and you know, and and I yeah. sang the first couple of lines on another track over that, you know, and I built the song from there, basically. So when you, and you were saying that because you had this heart arrhythmia, you were, you were already thinking about, you know, death at a very young age. Yeah, and... well, it just got me thinking about the whole, the whole dying thing. And, and like, you know, I think most people when they're, when they're sentient, you know, they, they don't want to not be, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they like to think that there's, you know, something beyond, uh, you know, beyond dirt. You know? <laughs> yeah. life, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. When was that thought about writing a song about premature death or about death? Was that at the? Was that present with you when you were intentionally recording 
and the riff came out and the first two lines come out. Were you like, was that whole mindset with you at that point? Well, fairly early on, you know, I knew the song was Don't Fear the Reaper and the, and yeah. the, the job was to tell a story, you know, that was, you know, engaging. And I, I thought of it in a, in a, like, in a literary or, or a, a, a visual sense, you know. I mean, I could see pictures in my head of, of the story as it unfolded, you know, so. So did the lyrics flow easily? Is this a song that you wrote in a day, two days, a week, a month? It took me about six weeks to finish the story, you know, to, to, to just make, you know, get the form and, and, you know, and find out how it wraps up, you know. You know, how is, how is the happy ever after, you know, achieved? You know, and basically, you know, what happens is, you know, the, the guy comes back over, the, over whatever the separates what I imagine is out there and what we are experiencing here, and he gets his gal and they go away, you know? Yeah. And yeah. when it first started flowing out of you, that first riff, did you know that you had something special? No, not until it was done. Actually, not until it was recorded at the record plant in New York did I realize that, you know, it really was something, you know. I mean, I made a demo of it on the four-track machine, and the band did a great job translating that demo to the, to the Agents of Fortune version. But it's basically the same arrangement. It's not very different, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I had the demo, I knew it was... Knew it was good. Is that I, is that demo available anywhere? Yeah, it's on one of our um, um, extended uh, versions of the Agents of Fortune LP. Yeah. yeah, there are so many misconceptions also about that song, and rather than identify what a lot of people think that is, you know, what the song is about, how would you describe what "Don't Fear the Reaper"? is a story about the biggest biggest misconception is is that it's about suicide and it's it's really not and i think just referencing romeo and juliet makes makes people think that and uh, i understand that how that how they do think that but that's not certainly what i was thinking about other yeah. than romeo and, Ju romeo and juliet you assume got somewhere <laughs> where, yeah. where they were going, you know, you know, yeah. maybe that's yeah. the biggest leap of faith you have to take, you know. Right. So it, yeah. Kenny, you, you were alluding to the fact that it's really a love song and uh, about, about love transcending death. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So for everybody out there, it's a, it's a, this, this wonderful love song about love transcendent and about this couple that, um, you know, they, it goes on, um, but in an overall very haunting kind of sense. It's just incredible. One thing I have to ask you about, you used the, you used the number 40,000, and how did that, about 40,000 40, every day? Um, I just imagine that's, that's the number of people that are just passing away every day. You know, I okay. don't know what the actual number is. I yeah. knew that I needed a number that I could sing, that had the right cadence, you know, the yeah, right number yeah. of syllables. You know, you wouldn't want uh, you wouldn't want like a, a complex number with, <laughs> with no. ten syllables in it. You know? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, and how, how do you feel about the song today? Uh, I'm not tired of it. You know, even even after 40 odd years, I'm not tired of it. So that's good. Yeah. Is there anything that I haven't teased out just about the creation of the song itself? What was going through your mind or, or your life at the time? To replicate the impact of, of the Reaper would would be nice, you know, but it's it's funny the way the song happened. Uh, it's not like I could just command another one to come into into being, you know. I have to thank uh, the universe or, or whatever, just people's perception of it, that they that they dig it as much as they have. I mean, I, I didn't know, you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. It's a moment of inspiration. My understanding is that the guitar solo and the guitar rhythm sections were recorded in one take. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the middle solo was recorded in one take. And, and then how did the, um, you know, there's this, the bridge section, which is... Yeah, which we're talking which about, the solo section, yeah. Yeah, okay, so yeah. when you have that section that come in that's a little bit disorienting, Right. Now that's supposed How, to, that, that represents the, the transition and, uh, you know, like, you know, that's, that's when the, you know, the skies part and, and all this, you know, metaphysical stuff happens. Yeah. And that was all recorded in one take, which is, I've done, I've read enough about interviews of other artists who have recorded your song mm -hmm. and they find it virtually impossible to play that bridge. Yeah. Well, even I don't play it exactly like the record, you know. I, I, I don't play any, uh, when you see me live, you know, I'm improvising most of the lead sections on every song, not just the Reaper, so. Yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, that said, um, the structure of the bridge was planned and the band recorded it with me on that. And when I did the lead, uh, I don't know if I'd done takes before the one we kept, but the, the, it was basically done in one pass. And it's not that I don't do it the other way where you take a bunch of takes and then you comp them together. I work that way now with the ease of digital editing. You know, it's, it's, it's fun to do that, uh, especially on the engineering side. But uh, in the case of Don't Feel the Reaper, it, was, it just happened to be one take, and that's what it was. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Everybody knows it, it's become such a part of, it's just such an iconic phrase now that, you know, I've got, I got a fever and the only yeah. prescription is more cowbell. So more cowbell. So yeah. Buck, when you first, when did you first learn about uh, Will Ferrell and the gang at Saturday Night Live doing the famous uh, what, Bruce Dickinson Cowbell skit. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's mom called us up about halfway into the sketch and said, turn on Saturday Night Live now. We just saw the end of it. And then, you know, I forget how long it took to see it again. You know, there was, we hadn't videotaped it in the, in the moment, but somebody did. And we saw it soon thereafter. And it was, they didn't tell us. They were going to do it, you know. Yeah. The uh, I don't know what Will Ferrell was thinking when he came up with the idea for that sketch, but it's hilarious, you know. It's still hilarious, you know, even after all these years. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's he was inspired clearly. 
it's a, he was he was inspired to come up with something like that and um and it really has become part of the vernacular that's transcended the Will Ferrell skit where there are moments where people say I need more co- cowbell to just about anything right no it comes in handy I mean every I say it myself <laughs> so how did you feel about it when you first saw it my first my first uh, reaction was relief that it was funny and, and that but uh, SNL didn't slag the band because they didn't, you know, they made fun of us, but it was sort of gentle fun, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. okay, so the SNL part and the Mark Hamill, and I can, I'm picturing Will Ferrell right now with his shirt riding up, you know, riding, yeah. riding up his stomach as he's in right. everybody's face with the cowbell. Right. But, of course, the so, star of the sketch is, is Christopher Walken. You know, he's, he's yeah, the guy well, of course. that's crossed, you know. I, and who is his name was Bruce Dickinson in the in the sketch, right. but Bruce now, Dickinson, Bruce Dickinson wasn't, wasn't the actual producer of the Reaper, but he was on this compilation record. And Bruce is a, 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 a um, Sony legacy producer of compilations, basically, is what he does. And uh, so they just took his name off the record jacket that they bought at uh, wherever sold CDs in those days. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's funny. Where they got so all Will, the costuming and stuff from the picture on the cover of that CD. Yeah, that's classic. So yeah. Will Ferrell just got the name wrong, but it's become part of legend. Right. So, but let's go into the studio about the decision to have the cowbell be as prominently featured. So, do you know how how that came to be? Yeah, the cowbell was added sort of late in the recording, um, and the. The idea was uh, belonged to David Lucas, David Lucas, who is uh, one of the three co-producers of, of that record, and uh, he he just thought it, he thought that the tune could use a, a little uh, four on the floor uh, consistency, you know, to sort of glue everything together. And uh, to this day, there's conflicting memories of who actually played the cowbell on the on the cut. I don't think I was in the studio when it was recorded. You know, so everybody <laughs> so, you know, everybody so wants to be I that don't know legend. Who played the cowbell? It was either oh, David okay. or Albert Bouchard. I think that's the two people that that are likely. David could have played it himself, or uh, but anyway, it, it's not in fact that loud. The cowbell. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you to the whole this. idea of the sketch even funnier to me, you know, because you know, when he says he, you could use more, well, you could, you could hear it louder, you know, because it's not that loud. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to ask Will yeah. Ferrell, you know, you're right, it's not that loud. What the how, how, did, how did the idea occur to you to make that sketch? <laughs> yeah, and then Bruce Dickinson, aka. Um, Christopher Walken in his inimitable fashion, which makes it classic. But there's another thing we talked about uh, when you were a drummer as a young kid and you hurt yourself playing basketball and that transformed you into picking up the guitar, which altered the course of your career and your life. And then you also have something like um, in this particular song, a choice is made by a producer to elevate the sound of a cowbell, and it's become part of just overall lore. And it's amazing how decisions like that happen. And, you know, Yore Rhythmia, um, 
led you to be in the mindset of creating one of the most classic and iconic songs of all time? Yeah, I mean, don't doesn't everybody live that way? You know, it just yeah. seems like my whole life has been walking through a door that opens. You know, rather than really trying to force you know my vision or or idea of life on on the world. You know, just the world grants you opportunities or you know or forks and roads and you take one you know and that's that seems to be the way it is at least my experience no absolutely i think that's yeah. really well said it's that uh it, rather than resist go to the places where it's not resistant we're i'm going to take a quick break don okay so we'll be right back with buck dharma of blue oyster cult a lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing. I'm Dr. Mike, host of Going There. It was the first song where I wrote about how I felt like my depression was killing me and I didn't want it. Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Barty Strange. There was something there that was so raw, where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by Sound Mind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, we are back with Buck, and I wanna ask a little bit, Buck, um, to wrap things up, about your 50th anniversary tour. Well, this whole year is our 50th anniversary. Um, we're doing yeah. a couple of special events for it. First one is a European tour. We, uh, ever since 2020, we've been trying to do uh, this arena tour with uh, Deep Purple in the UK. And uh, it was canceled in 2020 for COVID and then 2021 for COVID. So 2022, it'll probably happen, you know, barring any unforeseen difficulties. And then after that tour, we, we, have, uh, we have two nights in Paris which we're going to record and, and video, and that'll be part of the 50th. And uh, then also in, in New York on September 21, 22, and 23, we're doing three nights uh, at Sony Hall, and we are going to play the first three albums, one each night in their entirety, in addition to uh, the regular program. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And do you enjoy do you enjoy being on the road? I don't like traveling as much as I used to just cuz it gets more and more difficult, but playing and singing, yeah. Yeah, I really yeah. like it. You know. Yeah. As long as well, I can still I, do it, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I saw on your website that you're doing a Fear the Reaper show on Sirius XM for Halloween. Yeah, we've done that a couple of years now. That's, you know, I, I mean, Reaper is sort of a Halloween staple in a lot of ways, you know. I went into a Home Depot and there was a, there was a side of the guy going down, 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 down. <laughs> Yeah, so, you better be getting royalties for that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not big money, but you get something. <laughs> yes, you do. So, Dodd, yeah. because it is, that song is everywhere. Yeah. Does it still bring a smile to your face as you walk around and just experience it? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Uh, I just got back from Nashville. My wife had never been to Nashville, so we spent, went down there and spent a couple of days. And uh, I took her uh, to uh, a place on Broadway down in the, in the 
in the entertainment area there and uh, we played a, a place called a sky deck on a rooftop it's a big rooftop on a, on a big um, entertainment uh, dining complex anyway so I took her up there and we go out on the on the deck and it's about three in the afternoon and what comes on the PA, but don't fear the reaper. You know, it's, it's almost like I planned that, but I didn't plan yeah. it. It just happened. Yeah. And she said, sure, sure, Don, sure. No, we just left. We just laughed. We thought it was funny. We took a little video and I lip synced part of it for the video. You know. <laughs> Your last studio album was 2020's The Symbol Remains. Right. Do you have new songs that you'll be recording in for an upcoming album? Uh, we haven't committed to making another record because the uh, Symbol Remains is, was a, a stupendous effort we did. We, there's 14 tracks on it, and they're all great. It's, it's all killer, no filler. And uh, to top that would be a, a, a big mountain to climb. You know, we may may do more, we, but uh, no promises. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. So you'll be playing a lot of those songs on the tour, too. Yes, we will. Yeah, we, we play four songs now, and, and we'll probably do more this summer. Okay, gotcha. Great. Yeah. And then um, when you think about your body of work and just your, just your overall experiences as, as a musician, is there anything, any particular experience that really stands out like that was a special moment in my life? And I know you've had so many of them, but is there anything that in particular really sticks out? You know, I'd like to tell you a neat story, but I don't know. It's it's thought I've been just sort of, you know, grateful for the whole continuum of it. You know, it's we uh, I'd say the audience wise, we peaked in the early 80s. You know, we we headlined the, the ballpark in San Diego and it was like 70, 80,000 people, something like that. And that was the most we'd ever drawn, you know, as a headliner. and. No, you know we we play we play casinos, we play state fairs, we play medium-sized theaters, you know, and uh, we play clubs sometimes. So it's and I still enjoy every every moment of it, you know. Yeah, just different experiences. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this be, before we go: You have bands like Pink Floyd who just made their songs available for the first time for TikTok. Uh, as an example. And of course, there was the, the famous story of uh, Fleetwood Mac and Dreams was made, um, was brought back to life in a very significant way because there was a video that was on TikTok. And so you see a lot of that happening. And then you see a song like um, Kate Bush is Running Up That Hill yeah. that just has, has blown up on the charts and is number one on iTunes because of Stranger Things. So when you think about TikTok or new forms or new technology, is this something that, especially given how technically minded you are and you're an engineer by trade, is this interesting to you? Is it, is it fascinating to think of new ways for your music to come out? Yeah, and I think a lot of that's accidental. I mean, no one saw ringtones coming when that was a thing, you know, in the 90s or whatever it was. You know? And uh, yeah. the internet has totally changed the record business compared to what it was, you know. It's yeah. Disrupted it, you know. 
it hurt it, and then I think it's coming around again. I think streaming has finally become a, 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 a almost, if not in fact, equitable way of uh, making music for a living. You yeah. know, whereas when in the Napster days, it was just killing, killing the record business. You know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, well, yeah, I mean, we, every, every, I think one of the reasons why investors are buying up uh, song catalogs and stuff is because they see the future of uh, all media uh, that that uh, musicians and writers will be compensated in some small way every time music is used in the future. Yeah, well, yeah. and that's a great way to end up in terms of just like time, the reason those kind of deals are happening because of the ability to extend the life of these great songs and and resource them in a in a certain way and don't fear the reaper doesn't need any help you know that's that's a perennial classic like you said and that's timeless and it really was Bach, it was really a pleasure to have you lay out the story behind the song and join me on the podcast for this month so thanks yeah. for joining yeah well thanks thank you peter you know and uh, you know i'm i'm really grateful to have written the reaper and and again kind of surprised that it's what it is you know well it it's top 10 for me the perfect song thanks so much buck okay That was Don Roser, a.k.a. Buck Dharma, of classic rock band Blue Oyster Cult, sharing his in-depth story behind his haunting, timeless song, Don't Fear the Reaper. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti. That's P, C like cat, S like Sam, A like apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, Y like yellow, and at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. Also, make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. As always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.